It's time for the 7th Avenue Project. More information at 7thAvenueProject.com. Hello and welcome once again to the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. On today's program, Accounting for Taste. Yeah, I know it's something you're not supposed to be able to do, but that hasn't dissuaded my guest, Paul Bloom, from trying. Paul is a developmental psychologist at Yale University. We had him here on the show previously talking about the moral capacities of babies. He says scientists have badly underestimated them in the past, and he also believes that scientists often underestimate the richness and complexity of this condition we call pleasure. It is not just a question of nerve endings and instinctive responses, he says. What we like depends a lot on what we think. In fact, he says, there may be no such thing as purely physical pleasure at all. Paul Bloom explains his thinking in his new book, How Pleasure Works, and he'll explain it to us today. We'll talk about why we like what we like and the vast array of stimuli that turn us on, from food and sex to art and music to fantasies and daydreams. Stay tuned. Now, a conversation with psychologist Paul Bloom about the science of pleasure. Well, Paul, thanks for for joining me again. Thank you very much for having me here. And I want to say right off that it's nice to to read a book that uh, gives cannibalism a fair shake for a change. Yes, my my cannibal audience always appreciates that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to leave our listeners hanging there uh, with regard to cannibalism and and just keep them uh, in suspense about that. I'll bring that up later. But uh, for now, I just want to uh, ask you, what got you thinking about pleasure and that you could actually say something new about it? Well, I'm a developmental psychologist, and I've long been interested in um, the origin of essentialism in children. And by essentialism, I mean the idea that the way we make sense of the world isn't in terms of the superficial properties of things, but rather our beliefs about their deeper natures. And with children, I've, I've made the argument that when they name things, um, they're doing so not based on what things look like, but on their beliefs about what's inside things, uh, where they come from, their deeper natures. And I became increasingly interested in the broader implications of this essentialism, becoming interested in what children like and, and how their beliefs about things um, affect what they like. And from this, I became interested in what adults like and started to look at more adult pleasures like sex and romance and how our essentialist beliefs affect um, these sorts of pleasures as well. Well, let's see if we can follow the same line that you followed in in coming up with this argument. Children's essentialism. Why don't you elaborate on that for us? Well, um, there's an idea very common in psychology, and particularly developmental psychology, that people are superficial, that we're based at, that um, our minds are, are correspond and resonate to the way things look, superficial, perceptible aspects of things. And that for a child to be a dog is to have a certain appearance, um, to be a table is to look in a, a certain way, to have a certain shape, and so on. Essentialism rejects that view. Essentialism says that our basic understanding of the world is in terms not of what things look like, but in terms of their deeper properties, what the philosopher John Locke called essences. And essentialism is probably wrong as a philosophical theory of how things really are, but I think it's very right as a theory of how we think the world is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you and other uh, developmental psychologists have, have demonstrated this with a bunch of experiments. 
That's right. So the typical experiment, for instance, would involve showing a, a young child um, a picture, say, of a tiger, and seeing what, what he would naturally call it, and then giving extra information. So what if it turned out that, um, that his mother was a lion and his father was a lion, but it looks like a tiger? Or what if it was a lion that you put into a tiger suit so it looks like a tiger? And it turns out when you do this, these sorts of experiments, um, young kids have the intuition that to be a tiger isn't just to have a certain sort of appearance. To be a tiger um, is often to, to have a certain internal structure. And so even the youngest kids you can test appreciate that something can look like one thing but actually be another. Uh, so they're, they're a lot like, like adults, even scientists in that regard. That's the claim. The claim is that the sort of essentialism we find in adults, even adult scientists, um, is born out of a broader essentialism that all people possess. Now, I'm, I'm rather fond of another uh, set of experiments that you and your colleague Bruce Hood have done uh, that gets at this idea of essentialism. I think it involves something you guys called a duplicating machine. That's right. Um, and this kind of jumps right into the question of essentialism and object preferences. So Bruce, who's an amateur magician, uh, created a machine, basically two boxes, that we present to children as a duplicating machine. And it's very simple to do this. You stick, both boxes start off empty. You stick a, an apple in one of them. You close the boxes, and then you open them both, and there's two apples, two identical apples. You do this again for a pencil and for a hat. You show the children it's a duplicating machine, and children um, buy it right away. They're, they're used to two-dimensional duplicating machines, three-dimensional duplicating machines. is no big deal for them. So... Once you've done that, you now have an interesting tool through which to explore all sorts of things, including what they like. And in one of our experiments, we got children to bring in a favorite object from home um, and a sentimental attachment object, like a teddy bear or a security blanket. And we got them to put it into the duplicating machine. And we found that when we did this and we duplicated it, um, children very strongly preferred to take home the original, not the duplicate, even though that they're, they are, according it, from children's own perspective, perfectly identical. Mm -hmm. And we adults are the same way. If I have my lucky penny that I think is, is, is very special, and if someone offered me a penny that was absolutely identical in every respect, I wouldn't want it. It just wouldn't have that same essential magic. Or, you know, a keepsake from some particularly special experience, even if it's an exact interchangeable duplicate. One of them, for me, is sort of imbued with sentimental value, and the other isn't. Exactly. So just about every adult I've spoken to has some objects that are valuable because of their individual qualities, because of their history, and they're irreplaceable. I have my son's baby shoes from when they were babies, and if they got lost in a fire, I'd be sad. And, you know, if you said, don't worry, I went on eBay and found some shoes from the same time, that you can't tell the difference, I'd say thanks, but no thanks. I wanted those shoes. Um, and so this shows up with sentimental objects. It also shows up in all sorts of other domains, most notably art. So if you um, had a, a Rembrandt or a Chagall, and or Picasso, and I brought it, I put it in a duplicating machine and duplicated it, you would not be indifferent to which one you took home. <laughs> you, would, you would be very upset if I handed you the, the duplicate. I want the original. And even a, a perfect forgery, you know, is worthless by comparison to the original. Yes, and of course, you, you see this outside the lab. I mean, there, there are, I begin the book by the case of the great Vermeer forgeries. And when these were discovered in the 1940s to be actually painted by Van Meegren, um, there was artwork sitting in museums that people would travel all around Holland to see. There'd be mobs to see them. And the moment they were discovered to be not by who people believed it to be, but by this, this forger, 
um, suddenly they lost all value. They were taken out from the museums. Even yeah. though this fellow Van Meegren's his name? That's right. It must have been a, a very, very skilled painter to imitate a Vermeer. He certainly thought so. He, 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 would, uh, <laughs> he, would, he would go to museums uh, where he had his own paintings there, of course, and people thought they were Vermeer's. And he'd admire them. And he'd stand around and he'd watch other people admire them. And sometimes he'd get so antsy and so excited, he'd say to other people, I bet this is a forgery. And other people would correct him and say, no, this is such a work of genius that no one else could paint it but Vermeer. And Van Meegren would, like, leap up and down with delight. And um, he was kind of, he was, he was borderline mentally ill. But, and his belief was that if he were ever to be exposed, it would put the art critics in this terrible bind. Because then they would either have to say that he, uh, Van Meegren, was every bit the artist uh, of Vermeer, because they praised him so much, or that they were useless hypocrites. Uh-huh. It only. And, of course, when he was exposed, no, nobody did any such thing. They threw him in jail. And they um, and the art critics said basically, well, this is kind of lousy art, and I always knew it. <laughs> now that I'm looking at it, and many critics said, now that I'm looking at it more closely, I realize I had nowhere near the qualities I thought it had. Uh, people take this this idea to to great lengths. I mean that that objects are instilled with some kind of essence that goes far deeper than their uh, not only their looks but even their material composition. Um, for instance, objects owned by somebody. I think you cite some, some great examples here that somebody paid at auction $48,000 more or less for a, That's right. t- for a tape measure that was owned by JFK, by, by John Kennedy, or, or, or a member of his family, a tape measure. That's right. I, 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 forget, the, I forget the exact quote, but the person who bought the tape measure was, uh, was interviewed in the New York Times, and he said something like, when I bought the tape measure, the next thing I did was measure my sanity. Um, <laughs> But if it was discovered, if he discovered that this was just a plain old tape measure that someone bought at Home Depot and slipped it into the auction, he'd be enraged. And not because <laughs> he believes that he had purchased the tape measure with special powers. Yeah. But because he purchased the history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and we've studied this in the lab. Um, I've done some collaborative work with um, two psychologists, George Newman and Gil Diesendreck, where we ask people questions like, how much would you pay for George Clooney's sweater, a sweater that George Clooney wore? And the answer is they pay a lot. They pay more than the same sweater that nobody, nobody special wore. Um, what if he bought it but never wore it? Then they'd pay less. What if he bought it, wore it, but before it got to you, it was thoroughly sterilized? Then they'd pay less. So to some extent, um, in this case, it's history, as well as a bit of material residue. People want something that has the contact, the imagined contact, at least, of the person uh, who had once possessed it. Um, and before I forget, I do want to bring cannibalism back into the story, since uh, you, you do talk about it as another example, in some cases, of kind of essentialist thinking. That's right. I mean, cannibalism is fascinating <laughs> in many ways. I mean, one, one, one reason why it's fascinating is it speaks to general questions about morality and um, socialization. So why do most humans not like to eat human flesh? Um, it's not because it tastes bad. Presumably it tastes like pork. Uh, chicken. Um, everything tastes or, like chicken. Everything tastes like chicken. Um, according to one anthropologist, it tastes a lot like the, like spam. Uh. So, so, just, <laughs> so now you know. Um, okay. I'm not sure I mentioned this in the book, but for a while, and this may have been a, a sort of urban legend, but some anthropologists got together and were selling something which is a human flesh substitute, um, something made to taste like human flesh to give people the idea what it would be like to eat. But definitely, <laughs> it's, it's definitely, it's definitely taboo. Um, but. Um, the question I was interested in is, why do people eat human flesh in some, in some uh, societies? And 
Now, in some cases, it's actually fairly, um, fairly practical. It's a high source of protein. Um, it's tasty. And a reputation for eating the flesh of your enemies um, is actually uh, a way to scare off the enemies. It's, it's, it's quite impressive. But other people, many societies eat the flesh of, um, of old people, people who have just died of natural causes. And this is non-nutritious, and it's actually fairly dangerous. Um, there's all sorts of diseases one can get and people do get. So why do they do it? And if you ask them, and I think there's every reason to take them at their word, they do it as to um, imbue the essences of people. The belief is that, that as somebody walks around, they have a certain essence. Um, often that includes certain special powers, like their courage and their dignity and their intelligence. And one way, after they die, to get that essence into yourself is uh, to eat them. Well, we may say uh, foolish savages, but we moderns do a lot of the same kinds of thinking. We do. Um, in fact, for instance, people discuss um, body transplants, um, organ transplants, in this way. There's a, there's a lot of uh, a lot of the sort of folk psychological understanding of organ transplants, like a heart transplant, is that the person who receives it um, picks up some of the essence or properties of the donor. Mm. Well, how do we get from essentialism, this sort of conceptual habit or, or this deep-seated belief that we have about the world, that objects are unique, they carry in them something invisible and basic and fundamental, um, how do we get from there to pleasure? Well, I think we start with essentialism. I think we've evolved this essentialist way of looking at things in which our basic understanding of the world is in terms of our belief that things that what makes things what they are is deep and invisible and central to them, not merely superficial and observable. And now, um, when it comes to getting pleasure from things, to liking some things and others, um, we, don't, we tend to be um, attracted to, at least to a large part, by these deep essences. Um, so we, we've talked a little bit about material objects, celebrity objects, or lucky objects, or objects that people, that children have, like teddy bears and security blankets, but it applies more generally. It applies to food. So your way of understanding food isn't merely in terms of what it tastes like and what it looks like, but also who made it. What do you believe is inside of it? What do you believe it's touched? What do you believe its hidden properties are? And because this is how you understand food, um, this is reflected in what you like about food. Another example is sex. So you look at people, and you don't merely see people in terms of their physical properties, what they look like. You see them in terms of their histories, their beliefs, their desires, where they come from, your beliefs about their um, almost genetic properties. And so when you're attracted to some people, including sexually attracted to them, um, it's these deeper properties you often resonate to. Mm -hmm. uh, you list a lot of examples uh, that demonstrate this principle with regard to both food and sex. I thought I'd offer one of my own. Okay. Uh, when I was in college, um, I had a housemate who is a um, notorious wine snob. And uh, one night we had a dinner party. He wasn't there, and some friends um, thought about uh, testing his real discrimination when it came to wine. There was a really fine bottle of wine that we'd finished off, so it was sitting empty. Mm -hmm. And someone went to the refrigerator and got a bottle of very cheap jug wine and decanted it into the fancy vintage wine bottle. Um, the guy, the mark in this story, came home, saw the, the nice bottle, knew that it was very expensive, uh, poured himself a glass and started to savor it and pronounce on its distinction. Then this, uh, the friend who'd planned this stunt went and got the bottle of jug wine and said, well, why don't you try this? Uh, and, of course, he said, no, no, no. He said, go ahead, try it. So the guy 
did try it and nearly choked on it. They were identical wines. <laughs> That's a vicious trick. <laughs> but, but the logic is right. And, and as I talk about in my book, this study has been replicated many times. Um, and and your, your friend, the, the, the Mark, wasn't just being a, a snob um, or a sucker. How things tasted, they tasted differently to him. Um, your belief about what it is you're drinking um, affects not just your judgment of it, what you say about it to impress people. It affects how it tastes. I'm, I'm not a huge fan of, of a lot of fMRI uh, neuroimaging studies just because I think they tend to be a bit overstated. But I'm very fond of this one. You have people lie inside a scanner with a tube in their mouth, and through this tube, often wine gets squirted. Um, and as they're lying there, in front of them is a, is a screen, and they could see on the screen information about the wine, including how much it costs. You squirt the same wine into their mouths, and half the subjects are told it's cheap, and half the subjects are told it's expensive. When they're told it's expensive, the pleasure centers of their brain light up. They, they, they get a far bigger response in terms of actual physical pleasure from drinking the wine than if they believe it's cheap. So it's not the sort of after-the-fact, gee, if it's expensive, I might as well say I like it, it must be good. It's rather it tastes different. Now, this is a case where you use people's essentialism against, against them, to trick them. It's a case of a mistake. And, you know, as a psychologist, I love mistakes because they often illustrate deeper psychological principles. But people as a whole are not being irrational to be essentialists. It, it makes sense when tasting wine, when tasting food, to be attentive to where it comes from. It, it, there's no sense in which that's less rational than, than attending to its physical properties. Well, well, let me just, you know, argue back a little bit. What would, what would really be objective and, and, and rational would be to notice, for instance, in the story I just told, that the two wines were exactly the same uh, in flavor and say, well, that's strange. You know, this expensive one should be a lot better, um, you know, and this cheap one should be terrible. Uh, and yet they taste identical to me. But, but that's not how it works. Our expectations condition our experience and make us less, in a sense, less sensitive to the actual physical evidence. Well, I'll, I'll go with you halfway. <laughs> it, would be, it would be optimal if we could distinguish those aspects of our taste that come from our taste buds and our, and our olfactory bulbs, or our mouths and our noses, from those aspects that come from our deeper understanding, if we could sort of atomize them. Mm -hmm. But failing that, where I would disagree with you is your implication is that the real way it tastes is, um, is based on its response in our tongue and our nose. Yeah, it's chemical composition. Yeah, but why should that be? Why, why shouldn't we taste something differently based on what we know about it? Can I, can I change my example a bit? I'll change my yeah. example yeah, let's do where, it. Where, where I think it, it might be more persuasive. Yeah. You're looking at a woman from a distance, and you believe her to be your, your wife or your girlfriend or somebody you love mm -hmm. um, or, or a good friend or just somebody, somebody you love, and you see this person a certain way. Suddenly you realize you're actually looking at a stranger. Um, my bet, and this has happened to me, is your perception will shift. All of a sudden she'll look different. Um, now, I think that's a psychological fact. Is it rational? I don't know. It doesn't mm -hmm. strike me as either rational or irrational. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's just how, how things look. Would a perfectly rational creature judge the attractiveness of other humans based solely on the geometry of their faces and the structural properties of their bodies? Maybe, maybe not. I'm not certain there's anything wrong, for instance, with the, the, the very true psychological fact that the more you like somebody, the better you think they look. Mm -hmm. um, it's possible we could have been wired differently, so that wouldn't be the case. 
But the fact that that's the case doesn't strike me again as either rational or irrational. It's just a fact. And so if you believe me in the sex case, maybe you'll maybe think about that for the food case as well. Well, well I guess I'm thinking it, it could be that we're conflating two very different ways of judging. Now, now to say that something looks good uh, or I like the way that person looks, it seems perfectly rational to me to, to invoke the, the person's identity and their relationship to me. On the other hand, to, to actually think that two identical wines, I mean the same wine, tastes different. You know, I detect all kinds of wonderful notes in it if it if it's comes from an expensive bottle. And I think it's swill if it comes from a jug, you know? <laughs> you, you may be right. And, and, and in the case of the wine, the, the, what you have on your side is that there was deception. The person was really fooled. Um, but I think in general, to take in these deeper facts, to take these deeper facts into account won't necessarily lead you into something that's error. Mm-hmm. You're right that this is a case where, it, where it's error. But, but your contention um, is that most of these pleasures we're talking about, or maybe all pleasures, uh, aside from the most brute physical pleasures, like, say, injecting an opiate directly into my brain, have, have a dimension uh, to them that involves what we think about them. You know, what we think about them conditions our, our pleasure or displeasure. I would actually, um, I would say, I would take that and I would say, I think that's true for all pleasures. All pleasures. Even all pleasures and all pain, to make it a slightly weaker claim, at least can be affected by your beliefs. This would include being injected with adrenaline, <laughs> being injected with an opiate, drinking alcohol, orgasm, um, or on the flip side, being burnt, shocked, scarred. Um, for all of these things, um, we'll take pain. Your perception of pain would, would differ radically, I think, according to whether or not the pain is something you're voluntarily going through versus something you're being forced to go through. Oh, I'll absolutely agree with that. I'm a distance runner. There we go. And I subject myself to, uh, you know, a degree of pain that I probably have never experienced in any kind of trauma, you know, and yet uh, there's a s- strange pleasure to it. There we go. So, so, <laughs> so, so take the comparison. Take, take you at the end of a very long run, say a marathon. You've run, say, 25 miles. You feel really bad. So take that feeling bad. Now compare it to you wake up one morning and all of a sudden you feel like that. You don't know why. Um, in the first case, your badness is something which, which is mixed with triumph and, 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 and grit and determination. In the second case, you just feel like you're going to die, mm-hmm. and it's very different. Mm-hmm. Um, I would imagine that the physical experience, again, to flip it around, of sexual arousal or sexual orgasm would, would vary radically depending on what context you think you're having it. Mm-hmm. Have I got you right in, in uh, contending that you think this is uniquely human? Yes. I, I, I think... I. I'm slightly hesitant because I don't know. It's possible that other primates, for instance, are influenced in, in their arousal and their interest in, in, in mates, depending on their experience. So I don't want to say that you're never going to find anything I'm talking about in a chimpanzee or rhesus monkey. I honestly don't know. What I do think is uniquely human is the fact that for humans, this applies to everything. Oh, I, I, think, I think my dog, um, my dog, to the extent she likes her meal, depends on how hungry she is and the chemical composition of what she's biting into. Um, and she doesn't care about what it is in any, in any other sense. I think you may be selling your dog short. I mean, so? at, at least if she's like my dog. She was not allowed to eat food from the table, right? Right. Uh, however, if I were to take one of her dog biscuits, perfectly, perfectly permissible food, and act like it was from the table, oh, my God, it was much more exciting. You know, if I took it off my plate and dangled it above the table and then handed it to her, she was much more interested in it than she normally would have been. 
that's a that's a nice experiment. So here's but here's here's the follow up, which is um, <laughs> if, if your dog were a human, my bet is that would taste very good, uh-huh. better to her. <laughs> the question is for your dog: Did that taste better? Well, let's just say that when I was trying to get her to eat, when she seemed to have no appetite, if I would play that game, I, I, I usually got more interest out of her. You, then it's to the extent that to the extent that holds, and for instance, <laughs> if you gave a dog a new food and presented to her in that context, and then found out later, I'm sounding like an experimental psychologist here, but <laughs> yes, well, yes, found out later that she went for that new food in a forced choice over something which looked just the same, then that would say you're right. That would say that you find the sort of essentialist intuition that. It's that the taste of a food is more than what it looks like or tastes like in a physical way. You'd find that in dogs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And this is Central Coast Public Radio, KUSP. The name of the show is The Seventh Avenue Project. I'm the host, Robert Polly. The topic today? What turns you on? We're talking to the psychologist Paul Bloom about the science of pleasure, what we humans like and don't like, and why. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment. Let's do an experiment Act like lady and gentleman Wear intention on our sleeves Do you think you'd make it through the night Knowing there's nothing to hide From a woman who loves openly Cause if there's no fight, if wrong is right You know the game I'm playing Is it you want me? What you really said is you love it. You can't get enough. The challenge, unbalanced, the obsessive love. It's thrilling, appealing when it's gone. It's chronic, hypnotic. It's what turns you on. Now back to today's conversation with developmental psychologist Paul Bloom talking about his new book, How Pleasure Works, The New Science of Why We Like What We Like. Um, you are a psychologist. Are you an evolutionary psychologist? Yeah. That is one who thinks that ultimately behavior can be explained through natural selection. Not only am I an evolutionary psychologist, but I can't imagine how somebody wouldn't be an evolutionary psychologist. Um, I, I don't doubt that there are creationists psychologists around there who believe that uh, humans were created thousands of years ago by an omnipotent God. And in fact, I, I think a creationist psychologist could still, almost by accident, end up doing great work and great theorizing. But no, I believe that our minds reflect an evolutionary history. Now, let me tell you what I'm not. I'm not the sort of mythical evolutionary psychologist who believes that everything's an adaptation. And, and sometimes um, there's sort of a bad rap that evolutionary psychologists get where the idea is that you throw something at me and I say, well, it's evolved for such and so purpose. That I think a, a, a sophisticated understanding of natural selection, the sort that Darwin himself had, says some capacities of humans are biological adaptations and others are accidents. They're byproducts of, a, of adaptations. And so as, as an evolutionary psychologist, I'm fully comfortable saying that a lot of the pleasures that I'm interested in are not, uh, do not exist because of the reproductive success they conferred to our ancestors, but just exist because of accidents. They're byproducts of things that were adaptations. Well, I guess when you say every psychologist or, or, or everyone that you know is, is uh, an evolutionary psych- psychologist, you mean they, they believe ultimately uh, you know, in, in Darwinian evolution, 
but that may say merely that you believe that, that the brain evolved, but after that it's all up for grabs, um, you know, that once given this uh, remarkably uh, versatile organ, this, this ability to think that everything else is sort of accidental and a byproduct of uh, circumstances and, and uh, culture and things like that. Or you could go all the way to saying that every single thing we do is specifically selected for. So there's a huge range of possibilities within that category of people who believe in Darwinian evolution. Yeah, that's absolutely true. So, for instance, many people who believe in, many psychologists believe in Darwinian evolution, as you say, believe that what we've evolved is a very powerful learning machine, a very powerful brain that can do all sorts of things. And what we see, the successes and, and unique capacities of humans, are just because we are more powerful cultural creatures than, than other animals that walked Earth. Um, I disagree with that, but I don't think that person any less of an evolutionary psychologist than I am. They're just taking it in a different direction, have different ideas about how the brain evolved. Well, the downside to being too fervent an evolutionary psychologist, I think you called the mystical, is that you can invent a story for everything. I mean, every, every single behavior you see, you can invent a, a story that says, well, that could have been adaptive for this or that reason. That could have been... Uh, you know, have survival value in this or that environment. And, of course, one can do that forever without any proof or any justification. Um, how do you distinguish between valid evolutionary psychology, you know, valid right. ad adaptive sort of explanations, and ones that are just, you know, tossed off just-so stories? Well, I'll say three things quickly. First thing is, you're right, and, in fact, this was uh, Stephen Jay Gould and Richard Lewinton, a famous critique of what they thought is the overuse of adaptation, where they accused many scholars of having just-so stories, these imagined stories. Um, that, and, and you can make them up very easily for just about anything. But one thing I'll say is real-world evolutionary psychologists like Lita Cosmides and John Tooby and Steven Pinker actually are, are remarkably cautious in their adapt use of adaptation. Um, so, for instance, Steven Pinker, who's probably the most prominent evolutionary psychologist, insists that music and art and religion are accidents, not adaptations. Um, where you actually see just so stories, I think, and, and this is, is, is not from evolutionary psychologists, but from cultural psychologists, who no matter what, what capacity humans have, they tell some sort of story of how somebody must have learned it and it came through culture. But your question is a good one. So how do we discipline um, adaptationist thought? And this is a question not just for psychology, but, but ever since uh, G.C. Williams uh, wrote about this many years ago for biologists. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I, part of the answer is I think there are certain features an adaptation has to have. An adaptation has to be something that over the evolutionary history of our species, um, over some significant portion of it, led to increased reproductive success. And this is a huge hurdle to cross. Um, all sorts of things that are very important to us are probably not adaptations because there's no plausible story of how they led to reproductive success. I think music, for instance, falls under this category. I think religion does too. Now, then there are people, say Dan Levitin for music or uh, Jesse Baring for religion, who say, no, I have an adaptationist account. But these adaptation accounts are actually typically quite testable. They typically, and this is one reason why evolutionary biology is so important for psychology, because when you start making proposals about why something exists, um, it, it almost always makes strong claims about its current properties. So, for instance, just to take an example from religion, Jesse Baring argues that, um, that we've evolved religion because belief in a single God keeps us moral, mm -hmm. and it's connected to moral psychology. And this makes a strong claim that belief in a single God should be a default, more, a default view of all humans. And I think he's mistaken. But his problem is 
being mistaken, this problem isn't that he's not making a, a clear enough theory. Mm-hmm. For, um, for pleasure, um, evolutionary psychologists have made sort of exquisitely precise theories about exactly what, um, what somebody should be attracted to, for instance, or what foods we should like. And interestingly, some of them get proven wrong. Well, sure. I mean, you could invoke something as, as simple-minded as we don't like bitter things because a lot of toxic substances are bitter. But, of course, we do like bitter things in many cases. Exactly. And so, but the problem isn't you say, oh, oh my gosh, um, that evolutionary theory is proven to be wrong or vacuous. Therefore, you know, we, we can't do any sort of evolutionary theorizing at all. Um, in some way, we should be pleased with these cases because you could prove them wrong. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, getting to the, the, the vast range of experiences that can give us pleasure from, you know, things that we would think were, were purely physical, like ingesting some fatty, sugary dessert, to things that are extremely rarefied, like listening to music or imagining a successful future at some point in our life, yep. you know, or, or hearing that our favorite sports team won, you know, the championship. Uh, where do you see evolution playing a part and where don't you see it? I think evolution has endowed us with certain um, things that are just basically fundamentally pleasurable to us, um, barring some unusual exceptions and some accidents of physiology. There are some things that all people like. Um, people, uh, babies um, get pleasure from sweetness. Um, everybody gets pleasure from eating when you're hungry, from drinking when you're thirsty. Um, everybody gets pleasure from some sort of uh, from orgasm, from some sort of sexual delight. This, these are basically... Sort of everybody enjoys stories. Everybody enjoys uh, synchronized movement of some sort. You know, great variation in the extent to which you like this and that. But you're not going to find the communities of people where people um, really hate tonal music and really love listening to static. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. I did interview Dan Levitin, and I actually played him an example of what's called noise music, which is just this, by most people's, I think, uh, reckoning, this horrible grating industrial noise, and yet some people buy it and listen to it. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, well, then you, well, then you get to the second part. So, so we, we've evolved certain tastes, um, and, and I think it's sort of a finite list of things that we like, and they have sort of standard Darwinian stories. A baby who was repelled by the taste of breast milk would not last very long. <laughs> this is true. Um, um, somebody who had absolutely no interest in sexual intercourse, those genes are not going to do well compared mm. to people who do. Mm. And so and these are sort of simple-minded evolutionary stories. I think that that's where um, a flat-out adaptationist account begins and ends. Mm-hmm. I think added to that, we have all of these powers, many of them also adaptations that we've evolved, such as our, our immense social capacities and our imagination and so on. And then we could take these pleasures and run with them. So a lot of what I talk about in my book is the connection between pleasures and essentialism, which lead us to places which, where, um, you know, evolution in some way has never anticipated. And um, the imagination is one of them, where, where we're very clever creatures and we create imaginary worlds that satisfy our pleasures in ways entirely unanticipated. And we are also creatures who live in these complicated social arrangements where, um, for instance, we're trying to one-up other people. And that connects, I think, to your, to your um, staticky music example, mm-hmm. where if, if you're in a society of people um, and, and you all like music, there's a very natural human temptation to show off your virtuosity or knowledge um, or sophistication above everybody else. 
And this leads to the development of more and more freaky forms of music. Mm-hmm. And I think freaky forms of visual art. Mm-hmm. So, so in fact, often we, we, we develop pleasures in things um, just because they're so unnatural. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. any schmo could like a pretty picture. Mm-hmm. But for me to spend my life savings on a perfectly white canvas shows I, am a, I, am, I have a powers of discernment far more than yours. Well, to, to, to pick the most extreme example of uh, connoisseurship, uh, artistic connoisseurship in your book, the um, Italian artist uh, whose yeah. name escapes me? I think Manzoni. Manzoni, uh, yes. He, one of his works consisted of a bunch of cans of his own feces, uh, which were bought by collectors and museums, including uh, the Tate Gallery in London, which paid $60,000 for a can of <laughs> This actually happened? Yes, yes. <laughs> And um, and 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 the story the story goes on, and Dennis Dutton tells the story in his wonderful book, The Art Instinct. The story goes on that that um, that the artists failed to properly um, seal the cans, so many of them later on in galleries and in private homes exploded, um, which is probably a dramatic uh, artistic performance. Did they get their money back? I don't I don't know, <laughs> but but the but the point of this example is so so did we evolve? A special yeah. adaptation to love that sort of thing. Absolutely not. Yeah. In fact, the, the great appeal to this, and this is why human pleasure is so interesting, is that people who, who sell and buy such things are doing this precisely because that these tastes are so unnatural. Mm-hmm. So to some extent, most of psychology and most of my psychology is in pleasures that we, we don't have to learn, that don't come out through enculturation, that aren't a rebellion against uh, some sort of particular cultural movement. And uh, and a lot of the art and food and sex, a lot of discussions of that I, I'm interested in, the sort of thing you find in a young child. But you're right to point out, and I do talk about this in my book, that some pleasures exist um, because we are smart enough and motivated to rebel against the natural. And a lot of art and a lot of literature um, that we see right now is an attempt at such rebellion. Right, right. Now, just to tie this back to evolution, we should probably just sedate that Evolution will get involved in these things to the extent that a heritable behavior, it has to be heritable, it has to be something that can be passed down, uh, you know, to one's descendants, either um, increases reproduction or, or decreases reproduction and survival. But there's a great deal that doesn't fall into that category. It's neither heritable nor does it really impact whether we are able to multiply. And uh, provided that the species, you know, has adequate, you know, resources and, and can, can reproduce, there's a great deal of, um, you know, leisure time and time to do all kinds of crazy stuff that evolution never never really um, impacted. I mean, this is a, I'm telling a story, but it seems like a plausible story. I think that's right. I think, I think there's, um, there's an interesting counter-argument that I'm lukewarm about, but I've heard it from uh, Lita Cosmides and John Tooby, which is that a lot of the pleasures of the imagination are so time-consuming. They take up so much of our lives that they rob us from doing things that um, that would be, on the face of it, more useful. <laughs> to, to quote the Everly Brothers, uh, only trouble is, gee whiz, I'm dreaming my life away. Exactly. <laughs> so, so it seems to be a bad adaptive strategy to dream your life away. Um, um, you know, what are males doing watching porn instead of chasing afterwards? What are people doing any older time with video games and, and, and novels and so on? What, what I'm often tempted to do is to agree with you, which is that natural selection has given us all these desires but we're smart enough to subvert them and turn them to imaginary means. And, and that evolution will not put its uh, finger on the scale as long as those things don't 
keep us from reproducing or don't yes. impair our survival as yes. a species. And then the question that, that Tubi and Cosimides raised, which is a good one, is to what extent does that hold? I mean, if you imagine, imagine a hunter-gatherer in a lifestyle where, um, where collecting food and dealing with the social hierarchy is absolutely critical, where it's sort of a, a, a very Hobbesian world, a uh, very dog-eat-dog world, and this hunter-gatherer spends a lot of his time lying on his back thinking about poetry <laughs> and having fantasies. You might imagine he won't live as long as the person next to him is actually collecting food and so on. Yes. So it, it is, if it turned out that these, um, that these imaginary pleasures did lead to a reproductive cost, we would then have to ask, so what's the countervailing benefit that, um, that they provide that leads them to be there? Right. On the other hand, if they don't, for instance, if they're only recent enough, if, if, this, if this world of the imagination that we, still, that we live in now is a fairly modern invention, then it may not have been around enough for natural selection to get its hands on. Well, you know, I, I know I'm entering full-bore storytelling mode here and uh, inserting my own opinions, but I do think the state of nature as imagined by people like Hobbes and even by some modern evolutionist is itself a kind of made-up thing that involves constant fighting and struggle and all of that. But in fact, if you look at pre-technological cultures, they do have a lot of leisure time to sit around and tell stories and weave baskets or, or do cave paintings or whatever. I mean, so a lot of their time does seem to be consumed with these seemingly useless aesthetic activities or imaginal, imaginal activities. Um, I think we may have always had that going on. I agree, although... Um where I would focus on is your phrase, seemingly useless. Yeah. Um, so I, I actually, Stephen Pinker and I wrote a long time ago an article on called um, Natural Language and Natural Selection, where we argued for an adaptation of story, uh, an account of human language. And what we point out in the course of doing so is that you think hunter-gatherers are spending all their time grunting and running around. Yeah. But what they spend a huge amount of time doing is talking. Mm -hmm. They spend a huge amount of time telling stories. Right. And um, and then what we might what you might argue is that that those examples and the more general examples of a lot of our imaginary activity may not be as useless as they seem. Um, so, for instance, a lot of language and gossip is wonderful and important information transfer, and has a lot to do with status. Your, your status as a hunter gatherer and your status as a contemporary um, Westerner right now rests not so much on how big and strong you are; it rests a lot on how verbal you are. And how good and, and how charming a person you are, how funny you are, how good a storyteller you are, how imaginative you are, and so this 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 pushes towards a view which I am again um, agnostic about that there may be an adaptation as benefit to a lot of our sort of imaginative recreations. Yeah, well, I'm I'm you know I'm I'm a little skeptical in this regard. A lot of these stories about you know all of these social functions being adaptive contend that. You have to go through this process of, uh, of negotiating these social relationships in order to bond. And I would think that if evolution wanted us to bond, it would just cause us to bond. You know, I mean, it would be very simple to have mechanisms in place that didn't involve all of the ritual, all of the performances, all of the behaviors that simply caused us to, to bond as a community or, or to affiliate. I, I absolutely agree with you, with you on this. Um, the claim that things have adapted for social bonding or for group cohesion seems to be circular, almost magical. Mm -hmm, right? and, mm -hmm. and same with claims that they, they evolved to boost our self-esteem. There's all these sort of weird pseudo-adaptations to counts that posit <laughs> benefits that one would never need to have. But, but there's other benefits that are worth taking more seriously. Um, so here's one, again, which I'm attracted to, which is we spend a huge amount of our time 
daydreaming, living in imaginary world. Yes. Sometimes we initiate themselves. Nowadays we, uh, we get them from the web or TV or movies or books. It's possible that this does nothing for us. But it's also possible that this serves actually a fairly useful adaptive function in that we, we, we treat it as a form of play. And play is practice. Play, physical play is practicing physical activities like fighting and running. Um, and imaginative play is practicing what it would be like to live in different alternative worlds. So a lot of what we do in fantasy is imagine, what would my life be if it was this, if it were that? And we, 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 we plan, we work through certain things. Sure. And my, my hunch, and it's not more than a hunch, but my hunch is that if you were to strip away the power to daydream from a person, he or she would be grossly impaired. I would think so. Is there, I mean, I know you're not Oliver Sacks, but is there a pathology that results in an inability to daydream or an impaired ability to daydream? Well, the closest thing I would give, of course, would be uh, autism or, or other disorders on autis- autistic spectrum disorder like Asperger's, um, which do involve an impairment and pretend in play in the imagination. Um, and such kids have terrible problems making their way through the world. On the other hand, it's not such a fair case because they have other impairments, they have mm-hmm. social impairments mm-hmm. and often linguistic impairments. So it, if you're asking, is there a case where there's people who just lose the ability to daydream and imagine everything else is intact, that would be the perfect case to test what I'm talking about, but I don't think such cases exist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't even think such cases could exist. I think the ability for imagination is so integrally tied with other capacities like social abilities that... Um, you wouldn't. Ex- it's not a module that you could kind of pluck out and leave everything intact. I see. I see. Um, as you point out, a lot of our pleasure, maybe maybe the majority of our pleasure, has a component of imagination and fantasy in it. Whether it's the pleasure we take in works of art, where we imagine, you know, the story behind the work, or fiction, or uh, movies, or TV, or performances, or playing video games, or daydreaming. A huge part of our lives is is spent, you know, in a, in a kind of made up world, but we get real pleasure from it. The pleasure is as real in some cases as the pleasure we get from some material circumstances, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. I think if you were if you were to to um, tell people, look, you have to give up one pleasure. Um, I think be, I think they, people might give up the pleasure of food. Some people would give up the pleasure of sex. Some people would give up sport. Um, but I think it would be a big mistake to give up the pleasure of the imagination. You would find your life bereft. <laughs> uh, yes, indeed. And I have, by the way, interviewed um, guys who are in prison, and it's all they have. Uh, and it's a big thing. <laughs> it's a real big thing. Yes. It's Whether way, it's, it's reading or works of art or contemplation. Yes, I, I would imagine that's an extreme case where, where pleasure could fill the gap left by a, you know, a fairly unpleasurable real life. But this distinction between the real and the imaginary, on close inspection, that's a that's a hard distinction to draw. I mean, if I'm fantasizing about having superpowers and taking over the Earth, that's clearly fantasy. But if I'm thinking about my finances right now, just, you know, sort of thinking, oh, if I invest this way, I'll make this much money, or wouldn't it be nice if a year from now I could buy that house I covet, that's also fantasy. I mean, some people would call that real planning, but that's fantasy. That may never come to pass. It may involve all kinds of unrealistic scenarios. You know, if I think about my success in, in life, that's a social construct. That's a made-up thing. That's, that's not a physical reality. I mean, the majority of what we think about is, in some sense, made up. It's in our heads. I think that's right. I think you could think of pleasure and imagination as 
to um, two overlapping circles. Um, there's some imagination that doesn't have much to do with pleasure, that's not there for pleasure. Um, so, you know, if you're planning, you know, which job to take or what's the best route to drive home, you're just imagining hypothetical worlds and reasoning about them. If I did this, this would happen. If I did that, that would happen. And, you know, there's not really pleasure in that. There are some pleasures that have not much to do with the imagination. Um, some pleasures, like, you know, you're, you're drinking a good wine. I don't think there's much imagination in that. Mm. It, it, you know, you, 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 your beliefs affect what you're tasting, but it, it, but to, it trivializes imagination to say that it has to do with imagination. Really? So, so, so the, uh, the example I gave early in the interview of about the guy who was imagining that this was an expensive wine, it was clearly not. Uh, you know, and that conditioned his, his, uh, his euphoria, you know, <laughs> on tasting it. <laughs> I think uh, I think you're using the term imagining. You're imagining him caught up in the caught up in this con. Yeah. Um, but he just believed he was drinking something really good. Right. Um, we we could, let's let's use the term imagination for cases where um, one is aware that they're dealing with something that's beyond the real. This is a crude, rough and ready definition. So that would include daydreaming and movies and books, and include things you spend hours on each day. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't include you know. Scratching yourself and uh, and 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 running around the block and having sex and eating a good meal. Mm-hmm. So a lot of pleasures aren't really imaginary in any interesting sense. But then there's the huge overlap. If you think of these as two circles, they overlap, mm-hmm. and then you have um, all of these cases where imagination can give rise uh, to pleasure. And, and and there are some cases I would admit that where I would argue that although it doesn't look like it, imagination plays a role. So for instance, a lot of masochistic pleasures. Um, including masochistic sex, but also just including low-level masochism like hot baths and saunas and, and long-distance running, often have a sort of play-acting component to them, where, where you're, you're, um, you're, you're realizing that this is somehow different or distant from everyday reality, where there's a sense of safety and control that you have that puts it one step removed. Absolutely, and... and... Uh, the difference between running the marathon uh, of my own free will and imagining that I'm a kind of hero and being told to do it at gunpoint or because, uh, uh, you know, a beloved relative is being held hostage, those are night and day. Absolutely. I think, I, think, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I've never thought of it that way before, but to some extent, the ingredient of choice almost always adds a lot of pleasure to things. And I think the ingredient of choice injects the imagination because you're then thinking of what you're doing now and relating it to other alternatives that are not chosen. You know, in, in reading your book and in, in the parts about uh, imaginary pleasures or imagined uh, activities that give rise to pleasure, um, and this distinction between the real and the imaginary, which I have serious doubts about. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's a strict line. I don't think it's very easy to say. You know, I guess I'm, I'm one of those idealist types, philosophically speaking, that, that thinks that... Uh, it's very, very hard to call something absolutely real. Nonetheless, it, it occurred to me that what we think of as real and what we think of as imaginary or made up uh, or artificial really does matter in pleasure. And the interesting thing is a lot of times the pleasure seems to come from being suspended between the two. When someone writes a memoir, uh, they often are, are hit with this. Um, now, 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 really, you made some of this up, didn't you? You really made some of this up. And when someone writes fiction, and I interview fiction authors, and you know, people are always asking them, isn't this really true? Isn't this really true? It's as though people want it to be sort of both ways. When we look at a beautiful landscape, often, I mean, sometimes we say, God, it's just like a painting. That's really great. And when we look at a painting of a landscape, we say, 
wow, it looks just like a landscape. We sort of like being suspended. We like this feeling of being suspended between the two things. Part of the pleasure of looking at a painting for me is knowing that it's artificial, uh, if it happens to be a naturalistic painting, but also seeing through it to the, the thing represented. I wouldn't be as interested in it if it was the actual view, you know? I'm interested in that strange tension between the created and, uh, you know, the natural and real. I think that's right. I think that's very close to the treatment I give of, say, movies and, and books, but particularly movies, where what's critical for appreciation of a movie is knowing it's a movie. Um, if, you, if you're looking at something, say, let's change the example a little bit, if you're eavesdropping on people, eavesdropping is actually typically very boring because people just talk about one thing or another and there's no plot to it, no structure. Right. But if you're listening to it and you know it's a play for your benefit, created for your benefit, you, you, you appreciate it in an entirely different way. Um, so what, what I like about this, and this connects imagination to essentialism, where, where you could be perceiving the very same thing, but in one instance you believe you're just watching people. In another instance you realize you're watching some sort of artistic performance, a TV program, a movie, a play, and it makes a huge difference in your perception. And once you perceive it as a fictional event, as a product of somebody's imagination, then the tension you're talking about um, comes through. I think this is a good part for why we enjoy things like horror movies and dramas and tragedies, where there's somebody I, I see in a, in, in a movie, there's somebody running around with an axe, and I feel real fear. I, I can't block the fear. It's as if somebody was really menacing people with an axe in front of me, very frightening, and people are really frightened in horror movies. But on the other hand, I know it's not real. And, and this tension between this feeling of safety and control I get from knowing it's not real mixed with this honest-to-God fear is, is often a source of great pleasure. And it has to be just right. It can't be too contrived, so it has to be realistic. But if it was real, it would be just a complete downer. Right, and of course the balance between the, the balance we can take, how scary you want your movies, changes, it varies a lot across people. It changes a lot in development. Um, you know, you, you don't take a four-year-old to a horror movie. And it's not that the four-year-old doesn't know, it's not that the four-year-old is unaware it's a movie. They're pretty smart. They know that there's not real scary things going on, that people aren't really being harmed. But they can't override the fear they get. Um, and as adults, we can, but e even for adults, it's hard. There are certain movies I can't see. Again, not because I'm confused. I don't, you know, I, I don't like all the torture porn, so I'd find it uncomfortable to watch that. But it's not because I just think that it's real. I don't think it's real. It's that I can't block the low-level, visceral shock of the disgust and the fear. I suspect if we lived in a world where nobody was actually tortured, abused, it might be fascinating to watch. But our knowledge that this actually happens, uh, at least in my case, makes that stuff you know, kind of unbearable. I think that's right. I think that's right. As soon as I, um, as soon as I had kids, I found I could no longer see movies where kids were killed. Mm, mm -hmm. um, and there's some good movies I missed out because they revolved around the death of children. Mm. And once I had kids, because, again, I'm not confused about whether the movie's real or make-believe, but it, it, it's too reminiscent of real events I'd rather not think about. Now, you say that our, so part of our pleasure in movies is, is knowing that it's fictional, but also, uh, as with, with, with written fiction and other forms of fiction, it's, it's sort of knowing that a human being made it, right? Yes. And, and, and this applies at many levels. But one thing is, 
if I'm listening in on a conversation, there's all sorts of things I might get a kick out of. But I can't get a kick out of the, the, the cleverness of how the conversation was structured or how it caught me off guard or its humanity. and I mean, oh, All these sorts of things, because the conversation wasn't structured for my benefit. It's just a thing that happened. Mm-hmm. But if I'm watching a movie, I could be moved by the movie. I could be, I could be alarmed by the cleverness of the movie. I could be bored by the movie. There's all sorts of aesthetic responses we get that are made possible by the fact that we know we're witnessing a creative act by somebody else. Mm. I, I like the TV show House. And one thing I like about House is that it's well-written and it's clever and it's often funny. And, and I've watched shows where I said at the end, boy, wasn't that smart how they linked that up to what happened at the beginning or how they, how they got this one expectation and then they turned it around so that something else happened. Real life doesn't offer such things because... Unless you believe that God is an extremely powerful and meddlesome God, in real life things just happen. There's nobody to credit when things work out one way or another. Now, how would you feel if you were listening to a beautiful piece of music and you found out that it was created by a computer? I would probably like it less. Mm. I, 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 I don't know, and I'm a cynical enough psychologist to say, it, you know, I, one would need to see. Um, but I would probably like it less. Mm. Um, well, well, Paul, we, we've talked about a lot of different kinds of pleasure. We've talked about essentialist thinking, and we've talked about the imagination and so-called reality. What is your overarching theory of pleasure, if, if you have one? I guess I would summarize it in three words. Um, pleasure is deep. <laughs> <laughs> does, 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 that, does that work? Well, it's giving me a certain pleasure to, to think so. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> but uh, but you mean that that superficial idea is that pleasure is just maybe, you know, a matter of our nervous system taking a sensation and routing it to a certain part of the brain, and bingo, it feels good. You know, is 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 way too crude. That it involves a lot of experience. It involves a lot of thought. A, a lot of what what makes us who we are. That's right. Or or a slightly a slightly more extensive way of putting it is the the pleasure we get. From things, everything from sex and food and paintings and, and fiction and religious ritual, is is rooted in our beliefs about what these things really are. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's not just what they look like or smell like or, or feel like. It's our beliefs about their deeper, invisible properties. So, if it turns out that the voice on the other end of the phone line here is a computer, Paul, it would make a difference in how I, <laughs> I, I in the pleasure I get from talking with you. Well, it has been a pleasure. Well, thank, thank you. Paul Bloom. Again, his new book is How Pleasure Works, The New Science of Why We Like What We Like. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. Our website is 7thAvenueProject.com. I can see no matter how near you be you never belong to me but I can of your embrace for dreams are just like wine and I am drunk with mine I'm aware my heart is a sad